Alright, how is everyone doing? It is 2.30 in the morning, I just got back from the gym, I got a sick pump going, I am at the tippy top of my circadian rhythm, let's belt out a show. This is how we do So back in the 70s and 80s, and a little bit into the early 90s, there was this fantastic TV show by the name of Connections, starring world-renowned smart person James Burke. Would you do me a favor? I'd like to stop talking for a minute, and when I do, take a look at the room you're in, and above all, at the man-made objects in that room that surround you, the television set, the lights, the phone, and so on, and ask yourself what those objects do to your life just because they're there. Connections is one of the best edutainment shows of all time. It's just fantastic. Even if you haven't heard of Connections, I'm willing to bet that most of you will know one particular shot from that show. And in this shot, James Burke is talking all about astronomy and the space race, and he's on location at Cape Canaveral, and he's talking about how rockets work. And right as he finishes making his point about how rockets work, the camera pans backwards and reveals a space shuttle on the launch pad, and as soon as Burke finishes his sentence, the space shuttle takes off. You'll often see this listed online as the best-timed shot in the history of television, and... Honestly, it probably is. It was nice of them to pause the space shuttle launch until Burke finished his sentence. The entire show, Connections, is great. I very much recommend. It's on YouTube. Give it a go next time you're bored. It is fantastic. The entire premise of the show is that history isn't a series of isolated incidents. Everything happens because of something else. A series of connections, if you will. And you can pick any one particular point in history, seemingly at random, and then any other point in history, also at random, and you can actually find a series of causal events between those two points, no matter where you pick in history. It's all connected. Hence, connections. Well, I want to introduce that into my repertoire. So this show is basically connections, but I'm doing it instead of James Burke. That's pretty much the only difference. And I haven't run it by him, because I don't actually know him, not everyone in show business knows each other, but I am pretty confident that he will be on board, because he cares more about the distribution of knowledge than any potential infringement of copyright. At least I hope. So this show, this series, I'm not going to call it Connections, because that's a bridge too far. I'm going to call it The Butterfly Effect. Because even though that wasn't a bad movie, nobody seems to have seen it, so I think I'm in the clear. I'm going to call this the butterfly effect. And instead of connections, I might have the legally distinct conjunctions. And the first conjunction, see it's not a connection, it's a conjunction, I can't be sued. The first conjunction I want to introduce you to is this. Why was Star Trek responsible for the election of President Donald Trump. There's a butterfly effect for you. Do you want to have a think about it before we dive in? Do you want to try and guess? See if you can guess where this is going. Here, I'll lay down some thinking music. Why was Star Trek responsible for the election of President Donald Trump?
How'd you go? Did you get it? Or would you like me to peel back the curtain and show you the absolutely batshit crazy series of coincidences that result from one particular casting choice in the 1990s that can trace a path directly to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? First round, the Jeopardy round. There's a connection there, and I'm going to draw it. Here we go. The first ever butterfly effect. Oh, and just in case you don't know what the butterfly effect is, I'm sure you do, but just in case, no one left behind, remember? Simply put, the butterfly effect is chaos theory. Just like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. It's chaos theory. Still not clear on chaos. Oh, oh, it, 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 it uh, simply uh, deals with uh, predictability in complex systems. The shorthand is the, the butterfly effect. A butterfly can flap its wings in Peking and Central Park, you get rain instead of sunshine. The butterfly effect is the idea that the sensitive dependence on initial conditions in which a small change in one state of a deterministic nonlinear system can result in large differences in a later state. And <laughs> <laughs> then I go too fast. I go too fast. I did a flyback. No. Or, more simply, it's a ripple effect. One small change can have massive consequences down the line. A butterfly flaps its wings in Darwin, and that becomes the wind that drives a hurricane in Florida. A hurricane that Donald Trump will later try and nuke. Yeah, he actually did try and do that. And the butterfly in our story today is the television series Star Trek Voyager. And full disclosure, straight off the bat... I know I'm a massive nerd, and I don't shy away from that, but I'm not a Star Trek nerd. It's not my thing. I'm a Star Wars guy. I've never really watched Star Trek in any significant way. I've seen half of First Contact after I got home from a gig one night, and it wasn't too bad, and I watched the J.J. Abrams reboot right up until I realized that not even Carl Urban could rescue it, but other than that, I don't have any real experience with the Star Trek franchise, so this isn't going to be as deep as you usually get from me with most things sci-fi. I'm more like a civilian in this particular instance. But for the broad take, in a nutshell... Voyager is Star Trek's take on the Anabasis. See, I told you that comes up a lot. Remember Xenophon, the Greek mercenaries, Anabasis? Well, one of the starship's fleets, the Voyager, the titular Voyager, is the victim of a plot contrivance and suddenly finds itself flung halfway across the galaxy, far from home, fighting to get back to Federation space, just like Xenophon and his mercenaries. It's the Anabasis. It's one of those classic premises. I can't fault people for reusing it. It's an awesome premise. And the Star Trek Voyager, it's on its way home, and there's a cast of unlikely crewmates who have all of these adventures, and that's how fiction works. You guys get that, right? Well, one of the hallmarks of the Star Trek series, film and television, is that they always have a dispassionate alien on the crew to provide a perspective on the human condition, an outside-looking-in sort of view. You know, a Spock type. In The Next Generation, it was Data. In Deep Space Nine, it was Odo. And it was Jar Jar Binks in The Phantom Menace. Just checking to see if you're paying attention. Well played. You gotta have an autistic alien on the spectrum to tell you how things are going. And Star Trek Voyager's autistic alien 
was Kess, who was from a species called the Ocampa, who, remarkably, look exactly human. I mean, what are the odds of that, right? In an infinite universe, everyone looks human. But Star Trek gonna Star Trek, right? So the character of Kess was played by Jennifer Lian, and she played the sobering yin to the raging yang of the rest of the Voyager dynamic. She's the autistic alien. Or at least she was supposed to be. That was the plan. But what you have to realize about Star Trek is, you don't choose the Spock life. The Spock life chooses you. And the character of Kess proved to be deeply unpopular with fans and critics alike. And it was nothing against Jennifer Leon's acting. By all accounts, she was actually really good. She just got dealt a very shit character that nobody liked. Kess was a thin character who was poorly written. The showrunners of Voyager did her dirty. It was just a bad character. Daisy Ridley got the same deal. I will die on the hill that, as much as I hate the new Star Wars movies, and you guys know how much I hate the new Star Wars movies, Daisy Ridley can actually fucking act. She is really good. She got handed what is, objectively, the most dogshit character ever written in the history of fiction, and that's not my opinion, I can back that up with objective evidence. She took that and managed to breathe a small amount of life into it, give it some sort of nuance. Ray Skywalker is in no way Daisy Ridley's fault. She did the best with a very bad hand. And it was the same thing with Jennifer Leon. Despite her obvious talent, she got a shit character and people didn't like her, so unfortunately, she had to go. Show business is brutal. Trust me, I'm here at 2.30 in the morning. That, and apparently, but unconfirmed... The pressures of being a disliked part of a massive franchise started to get to Jennifer Leon, and she started spiraling out of control in her personal life and had a breakdown, which is unfortunate, it's tragic, but Tinseltown is tough, right? So three seasons into Star Trek Voyager, the character of Kess was written out, much to the relief of the people who watched the show. Apparently, like I say, I've never watched it, but everyone cheered when Poochie went back to her home planet. So in the show, Kess becomes a being of pure energy and nopes the fuck out of the series, never to be seen again. Which is something that happens a lot more than you might think if you don't follow science fiction. Happens a lot. We call it doing an Obi-Wan. But it's also how Michael Shanks got out of his contract with Stargate SG-1, which is a show I did watch. And when I say that, I mean that the actor Michael Shanks himself actually became a being of pure energy and transcended this dimension which is an absolute baller move in contract negotiations. The writers had no choice but to force his character, Dr. Daniel Jackson, to do the same thing and also become an incandescent ball of light that left the series. Or at least that's my understanding of what happened. So Star Trek Voyager found itself in need of someone to fill the role of alien on the spectrum, both within the narrative of the Star Trek universe, a character who can provide an outside-looking-in foil to the humans on the show, and in the more meta sense of a pair of tits for a very juvenile male fanbase to pretend that they don't care about. And the character that was developed was known as Seven of Nine, one of the most iconic characters in any franchise ever. Seven of Nine is a reformed Borg, which makes a lot of sense if you know what that means, and it won't make a lick of difference if you don't. 
You just need to know that the Borg within the Star Trek universe are androids, or I guess gynoids in this sense, and they're robots that don't have human emotions and thus can fill that Spock life role. And we need someone to play this iconic character, this Seven of Nine. Who shall it be? And that question, that question is what ultimately, but unintentionally, leads to the downfall of Western civilization. Because normally, it wouldn't matter who played Seven of Nine. The character is just a generic human girl who was abducted by a race of robots and assimilated into their collective robot consciousness, and then later rebelled and rediscovered her humanity. Even if you don't know Star Trek lore, you know the Borg's catchphrase. Resistance is futile. We are the Borg. You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. So it's a character who was human, turned into a robot, turning back into a human, rediscovering humanity. You know, that kind of dramatic arc that all actors dream of, and everyone would be absolutely chomping at the bit to play that kind of role. It's a great role. Everyone wanted it. And because of that, it doesn't really matter who got to play Seven, just as long as they weren't a complete scrub. A lot of actors can do this. But it turns out that it did matter, because history is weird, and we live in the darkest possible timeline. The actor that ended up getting cast as Seven of Nine was Jerry Ryan. Jerry Ryan was relatively unknown at the time. She had a couple of bit parts in her career to that point, her only main role being a semi-regular appearance on the science fiction show Dark Skies, which I honestly can't tell you if Dark Skies was severely underrated or if it was just that it was the only thing on at 4.30 in the afternoon when teenage me got home from school before I had the internet, so I was kind of forced to like it. And I don't want to ruin the double-slit experiment by re-watching Dark Skies, so let's just say it was good. What matters is that the year is 1997, and Jerry Ryan, of Dark Skies fame, has just been cast as the iconic character Seven of Nine. What also matters, that shouldn't matter, but does, is that Jerry Ryan was not born Jerry Ryan. No, she was born Jerry Zimmerman. No, Zimmerman. I will honestly never get tired of doing that bit, so you guys better learn to love it, okay? Oh, cinnamon, where he gonna run to? In 1991, six years prior to Star Trek, Jerry Zimmerman married the Goldman Sachs investment banker Jack Ryan. If the words Goldman Sachs investment banker set off your spider sense, then that is a healthy level of skepticism, and you should be very proud of yourselves for having that. But this was pre-GFC, so we didn't know then what we know now. We didn't know it was all going to end horribly, although it was post-Ivan Bosky, so we probably should have known. But I did cover all that in a show a while ago, which is worth a re-listen because it's one of my personal favorites. But anyway, Goldman Sachs bankers, bad. So Jerry marries investment banker Jack Ryan, becoming Jerry Ryan, the name that we all know today. And things go about as well as you might expect, at least for a while and they even have a child together. But once Jerry gets cast as Seven of Nine, things start to fall apart. The couple lived in Wilmot, Illinois. But now, Jerry, having been cast as Seven, 
has to commute to Los Angeles every week to meet Voyager's strict and ambitious filming schedule, which could run for up to nine months of the year, six days a week, 12 hours a day. For anyone who's not aware of how show business works, it's actually a lot worse than you might think. So Jerry is actually away most of the time. And this is going to put a strain on most relationships, and it certainly did put a strain on theirs, and that's why performers tend to date other performers. We're a different breed to civilians. 2.30 in the morning, remember? It's why Taylor Swift has so many boyfriends. Well, that, and she always needs new song material. At least that's what people say. So Jack and Jerry Ryan's relationship begins to fracture as a result of the grueling filming schedule of Star Trek Voyager which actually turned out to be worse for Jerry Ryan in particular than it was for the rest of the cast members because she needed to spend even more time every day in makeup getting turned into a sexy robot who gave teenagers weird boners. So that's one aspect of why things were going badly for the Ryan couple. And it was directly because of Star Trek. But there was also something else going on at the time. See, it turns out that Jack Ryan, investment banker and multimillionaire, Turns out he's a bit of a dirty boy. Jack Ryan has some, um, peccadillos, one might say. Look, I'm the last person who's ever going to kink shame someone, but it is relevant to the story that Jack Ryan was into some super freaky shit, and Jerry Ryan, well, she wasn't so much on board the Fet life. She wasn't into the whole deal that Jack was trying to promote, into the, uh, and I'll quote Jerry Ryan here, bizarre sex club with cages, whips, and other apparatus hanging from the ceiling, end quote. She wasn't about that life. Apparently, Jack tried to get Jerry to do some freaky shit, and she wasn't into it. And as she started to get away with the shooting schedule of Star Trek, the interstate commute, and all that time apart, it gave Jerry Ryan time to reflect that maybe, just maybe, being taken to bondage clubs all over the world and being asked to perform in public shibari orgies wasn't quite as normal as Jack Ryan made it out to be. You ever drunk Baileys from a shoe? (laughs) What? You want to come to a club where people wear on each other? She wasn't quite into the clubs where people wee on each other. And I mean, you do you, boo. If that's your jam, then have at it and enjoy yourself. Everyone, get your freak on. Shine on, you crazy diamonds. Just as long as it is safe, sane, and consensual. I got the funk. But in this case, it wasn't. Jerry Ryan was absolutely not on board with the whole weeing on people in Tokyo sex clubs life. She was yucking on the yum something severe. And that is what put the final nail in the coffin of their marriage. And after a few years of acrimony, the couple were divorced in 1999. As far as divorces go, it was quite messy, but that's how divorces go. But it's their divorce. The details of it are never going to be relevant to the larger population, right? This is some private shit behind closed doors. Another failed marriage. Tragic, but who cares, right? That's where it could have ended. That's where it should have ended. The couple would have quietly filed for divorce, gone their separate ways, this particular show never happens, and the world doesn't get that much closer to ending. But no. Oh no. We do not live in that timeline. We live in the darkest possible timeline. Because Jack Ryan, 
aside from being a sexual deviant, which is fine, is also a fucking Tory, which is not fine. Because Tories, and say it with me now, Tories are the worst people in the world. Now, you may have guessed that Jack Ryan was a Tory because he was an investment banker, and you're absolutely correct. But like all Tories, he couldn't just sit on his draconic pile of money and wee on prostitutes or whatever it was that he wanted to do with his disgusting pile of wealth. No, of course not. Because when you get that rich, it isn't enough to just be that rich. No, you need more. You need to fuck over the common man. You need to rule over them. That's when you know that you've made it. Which is why Jack Ryan decided to run for the position of Governor of Illinois. As a Republican, in case you were wondering, which you absolutely were not wondering, the guy is a freaky sexual deviant with a shitload of money, of course he's a Republican. Hail brothers! So the position of Governor of Illinois was previously held by Peter Fitzgerald, also a Republican. Now, it needs to be said that Fitzgerald, while a Republican, was not an absolute enemy of mankind. He was still a staunch conservative who believed in repressing women's rights, electrocuting gay people, and never taxing big business. He was still a shitty fucking Tory, but he did believe that maybe we shouldn't be setting the planet on fire, and he did make a concerted effort to root out corruption in the Illinois legislature, which are laudable traits in any politician, and absolutely made Peter Fitzgerald an enemy for life to the rest of the Republican Party. Never gone behind Mr. Burns' back before, but Sideshow Bob's ultra-conservative views eh, conflict with my choice of lifestyle. So the GOP made it clear to Fitzgerald that he could either resign at the next election, or he could be pushed, but either way, he was out of office. So Fitzy, he decided to fall on his sword and retire from the Senate. Now the candidacy is vacant, and the Republicans need a candidate who embodied all of their core principles of being the worst possible human at all times, and who should put his hand up but former investment banker and current pervert Jack Ryan. A fine mahawk to you all. Well, he's even better. I agree. I like the human touch. And even then, that's where it should have ended. A state election in the USA that the rest of the world, and especially an Australian podcaster, could not give less of a shit about. But as I keep saying, we are in the darkest of possible timelines. So Jack Ryan wins the Republican nomination in 2004, and he runs for the U.S. Senate. And he does it the Republican way. We want less taxation, more guns for toddlers, and a bald eagle on every street corner. Your guilty conscience may force you to vote Democratic, but deep down inside you secretly long for a cold-hearted Republican to lower taxes, brutalize criminals, and rule you like a king. That's why I did this. To protect you from yourselves! That's his campaign, and that should be enough. But... Even though the incumbency is firmly Republican, and Illinois at that point was a red state and this election should be in the bag, there is still a chance that a Democrat could stage a miraculous upset victory. So Jack decides that he'd better roll out the old Tricky Dick Nixon playbook and do some dirty tricks to bring this election home, to really ram home that advantage and make sure it stays Republican. 
And he needs to do this because the Democrat in this particular election was something else. He was good. He wasn't what people were used to in politics. He was young. He was vibrant. He had ideas and a vision. He had incredible charisma. He could charm the masses and connect with the individual. He was black. That is far too many wildcards. This guy is a problem. So Jack Ryan has his personal campaign staffer, one Justin Warfell, act like an honest-to-God Philip Marlowe-style private detective and follow the Democratic candidate around all day, 24-7, sniffing for dirt. You know the deal. The super zoom-in camera lens, tailing the car without the headlights on, pretending to read a newspaper on the park bench, full 24-7 coverage, waiting for this guy to slip up. But he didn't. The Democrat was squeaky clean. It turns out that this Barack Obama dude was legit. It seemed like he was the kind of lunatic who actually believed in public office as a mechanism for making a difference, just like a huge fucking nerd. And when word got out that Jack Ryan was doing the old Maltese Falcon on Obama, people were not impressed. They didn't like this level of dirty trickery in their Senate campaigns. Or at least that's what they publicly claimed. There was a huge public backlash against Jack Ryan, and his approval ratings took a dive because of the whole peep and pry act that he'd been up to. He's down in the polls, he took a big hit, but it wasn't catastrophic. After all, you kind of expect a Tory to act like a Tory, right? This isn't the worst thing in the world. But that's when the press got involved. Whether or not the press were acting in the public interest isn't germane here. They smelled a story and they smelled a good one. And the press went, well, turnabout is fair play. I wonder if there are any skeletons in the closet of the Republican candidate, Jack Ryan. And, armed with a Freedom of Information request, they went sniffing around in Jack Ryan's closet, and oh boy, did they find some skeletons. Skeletons with ball gags and we on them. Jack and Jerry Ryan's divorce papers were leaked, and all of the dirty intel within them. Jack Ryan, Republican, the party of conservatism and family values, had a track record of trying to coerce international feminist icon Seven of Nine into super freaky public bondage sex. A week later, Ryan withdrew from the 2004 Senate campaign. His replacement was a far more stereotypical Republican, the utter lunatic Alan Keyes. Keyes was always good for a hot take, considering most of his opinions contained some combination of the words Jesus and hell. He opened his campaign with an unhinged rant about how all homosexuals were going to burn for eternity, and then things went downhill from there. It was catastrophic. Barack Obama won the Illinois election in one of the biggest landslides in U.S. history. And on the back of that momentum, he swept the Democratic primaries four years later, subsequently becoming the 44th president of the United States of America. The Obama presidency is a fair chunk of history that we don't have time to get through right now, but there is one incident in particular that I would like to focus in on. On April 30th, 2011, the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner took place. This is a black-tie dinner where the press and the government schmooze, and it's a chance to eat and drink at the taxpayer's expense. It's a good time all round. This particular night is famous for a couple of reasons. 
It was hosted by the comedian and late-night talk show host Seth Meyers, who goes all right. This is just shy of the highest praise I will ever lavish on most comedians. He goes all right. I mean, Seth Meyers is assuredly competent. I just don't really rate comedians that aren't me. You don't want to know my opinions on most of them. Also in attendance at this correspondence dinner were a few social luminaries, as is the case with the White House Correspondence Dinner. You expect luminaries. Luminaries such as the President of the United States of America. This is the White House dinner, after all. And Barack Obama was indeed in attendance that night. Seth Meyers, as the MC, he made a few jokes at the expense of the President, which were met with good humor, because that's the fucking point of political comedy. The only way to not look like a dick is to laugh harder than everyone else. And Barack Obama laughed the hardest. Keep that in mind, it's going to be important in a second. One of Meyer's jokes that night that brought the house down was that President Obama was still, after a decade of trying, still unable to track down the leader of the Al-Qaeda terrorist organization and mastermind of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, Osama bin Laden. Jokes were made about where bin Laden might be hiding and what he might be doing and how the president might go about catching him. And then the camera cuts to Barack Obama and Obama's laughing his ass off at these jokes. He's having a great time, possibly because they're actually pretty funny. But more likely, he was laughing because the president was one of the very select few people who knew that Osama bin Laden had been assassinated that very day, not zero dark 30 minutes ago. That was probably why he was laughing. Then, Barack Obama himself got on stage and started his speech. It was as good as you'd expect. Say what you like about Obama, and plenty do, but he's a fucking amazing orator. That's my expert opinion. Trust me when I say that. So Barack is talking, and it's going well, and then he decides to open up the rhetorical equivalent of the nuclear football, and he goes full-on apocalyptic. Because there was one particular person in the audience that night that Barack Obama could not resist going after. In attendance at that dinner was none other than the failed casino owner, failed steak merchant, failed real estate mogul, current game show host, and noted pants shitter Donald J. Trump, the face of the television show The Apprentice. If I ever release this show on the main feed, I'll show you some of the inevitable hate mail I get whenever I say that Trump is a fucking moron, as if people don't know my politics going in and I don't mention it on every show. It's somehow still a surprise to them. So at this point in time, 2011, Trump wasn't quite the political force that he would later become. But he was a known nuisance, and very famously a third-generation massive racist. Donald Trump made no effort to hide the fact that he absolutely despised Barack Obama. In the months leading up to the Black Tie Gala, Donald Trump had become the leader and public figurehead of the so-called Bertha Movement, a pseudo-political cabal of internet whack jobs who were the proto-QAnon movement. These so-called Berthas invented and repeated the absolutely fallacious lie that Barack Hussein Obama was not, in fact, an American citizen at all, and was actually born in Kenya, thus making him ineligible to be the President of the United States. This is, of course, utter bullshit. There was never any credence to this lie. It is all fabricated, it is pure agitprop, it was never intended to be anything other than a racist dog whistle. And the chief whistler was Donald Trump. 
First, he demanded to see Barack Obama's birth certificate. Obama obliged. He was indeed an American citizen. Then there was the demand to see the so-called long-form birth certificate, as if someone who went to all that effort to commit sedition would be tripped up by not amending the next couple of pages of their birth certificate. Like I say, it's absolute nonsense. But it was nonsense that sold newspapers and filled airtime, so Trump was happy to keep spouting it. Since when has Donald Trump ever been bothered by such a ridiculous concept like truth? And this continued for months and months and months, and Obama bore it with about as much grace and composure as you might expect, and much more than it deserved. Trump kept at it. Obama stayed stoic. Until this night, in 2011, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Because now, Obama had the microphone at what is, by and large, a comedy night. And in the audience was none other than the chief birther himself, Donald J. Trump. And Obama absolutely unleashed. He roasted Trump so badly that even the late Greg Giraldo would have been impressed. Obama's predator drone strikes in the Middle East did less damage than this speech did to Donald Trump. It was epic. I would include clips here, but you've probably seen it, and if you haven't, you should certainly seek it out, because I am not going to disrespect the comedy of this moment by merely repeating it. It has to be experienced. It is a destruction. And if you see the tape and you read the first-hand accounts, you'll know that Donald Trump seethed. He squirmed and he sweated. He hated it. This is a man who has spent his entire life surrounded by yes-men and flunkies, people who go out of their way to inflate his massive ego, and now he was being systematically ripped apart by none other than the President of the United States. And not only that, Trump was being humiliated by a black man. Something in Donald Trump snapped that night. The man has skin like paper mache and absolutely no understanding of humor on a conceptual level. He took it personally. So on that night, he decided to run for president himself. And because we live in the darkest possible timeline, he won. And the rest, as they say, is history. And how do I know, without a shadow of a doubt, that Trump decided to run for president because Obama was mean to him? Well, because he released a statement that he enjoyed that night. He had a great time, and he specifically said he did not decide to run for president because of that one particular night. And if there's one thing we should all know by now, after four of the most horrific years in human history, it's that when Trump publicly says one thing, he always means the exact opposite. That is the moment he decided to run for president. And all of this is because one day in the mid-1990s, a lifetime ago, Paramount Pictures decided they wanted to launch a new Star Trek franchise. It happened because two years into that new franchise, ratings were tanking and they brought in a new cast member to bump that core demographic. And that's how complex history is. That's how interconnected. That's the butterfly's wings flapping and making a hurricane. 
a hurricane that President Trump would later draw to be larger than it actually was because he didn't understand maths and couldn't back down, a hurricane that he would later have to be talked out of stopping with a nuclear missile. Yes, that's a real thing that actually happened. None of this craziness, this darkest timeline, none of it would have happened if Gene Roddenberry hadn't had an out-of-body experience during a plane crash and wondered if there were life on other planets. So if you're ever wondering why I start shows where I do, remember that history is an incredibly complex web and literally every event that has ever occurred can find a common thread with something else. So I guess we should all consider ourselves lucky that every show doesn't start with 13.8 billion years ago, nothingness exploded, here's a series of events that led to the invention of the three-point seatbelt. Resistance is futile.